thank you for those who are willing to come out on Wednesday night and study through the Old Testament because we know that this isn't just history, but it's for us as well. So, Lord, bless this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen, Amen. So we didn't quite finish 2 Kings chapter 4. And, of course, at this time in, in the history of Israel, and the focus has been on the house of Israel over the last several chapters, because house of Israel, every single one of the kings were evil kings. And we know that in the darkness that they were experiencing, God sent to light, and that was Elijah at first. You remember that Elijah came on the scene when Ahab was the king of Israel, and Ahab had plunged the nation deep into idol worship, into Baal worship. And we know that Elijah, that he would call down fire from heaven there on Mount Carmel, and he would show the people the power of God and, and that God is real, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. And the people would see it, but yet they would continue in their rebellion. And God's hand of mercy was even extended to Ahab, giving him victory against the Syrians and, and coming and saying that Ahab, I will not deliver you into the hands of the Syrians. But yet Ahab refused to turn to the Lord. And we saw that Ahab continued in his wickedness with uh, the whole situation with Naboth and his vineyard and Jezebel having him killed so Ahab could have it. So judgment was pronounced upon Ahab. And we know that in 1 Kings chapter 22 that he would be killed in battle against the Syrians. It would be shortly after that that Elijah, that his ministry would come to an end. He would be ushered up into heaven in that fiery chariot, raptured up, as we saw, taken in that fiery chariot, as Elijah, the mantle of the prophetic office, would fall upon him. And he would receive a double portion of Elijah's anointing. And what we have been seeing over the last couple of weeks is Elijah beginning to work miracles. Matter of fact, when you look at Elijah's miracles, he did twice as many miracles than Elijah did. And Elijah is working a lot of the same miracles that Elijah did. And we ended last week as he would raise up a, a, a boy uh, that was a Shunammite son. You recall that it was this Shunammite woman that had the gift of hospitality. And whenever that Elijah came into her area, she would feed him. And then she and her husband fixed up a room for him that he had a bed, he had a, a lamp, he had a place where he could rest. And uh, so Elijah, in his thankfulness and wanting to show gratitude and kindness to her, asked her, what is it that you would want? And she said, I don't need anything. I'm very content. So what made her a great woman was not only did she have uh, the gift of hospitality, but also she was very content. And again, to remind us that I think that's a very much of something that we need to learn. The Bible says that we need to be content in what God has given to us. It was Paul the Apostle that he would write that I learned to be content when I had much and I had little. But he was always content and have a heart of thankfulness. She said, I'm content. So what happened was, as Elijah learned that she was barren, that her husband was old, and, and he said, you're going to have a son, and, and miraculously she would conceive and have a son. That son ended up dying, and the third thing that we saw last week that this woman had was faith. Because not only did she, you know, as her son died, she took her son and she laid him up on Elijah's bed that was used when he would come by. And she didn't prepare him for burial, but she prepared him 
for a miracle. She goes find Elijah, and Elijah comes. And you recall that we ended last week with Elijah. What he did is he stretched out on that young boy. He went hand to hand. He went eye to eye. He went mouth to mouth, and life was restored into him. And I think that as we cover our text here quickly tonight and we move into chapter 5, we're going to see some things that's going to help you and I be able to minister to others. Because, you see, the Bible declares that those who don't have Jesus Christ, that they are dead spiritually. We know from Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul writes that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, we are dead spiritually. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in dying on Calvary's cross, as we surrender to him, then we are born again by the Spirit of God, and we are alive spiritually, you know, a new birth, a regeneration that happens as we surrender to Jesus Christ. But people in the world that don't have Jesus Christ, they are dead spiritually. They are blinded, as the scripture says. And the way for you and I to be able to help others see life being restored to them is you have opportunity. Because every single one of us, we know people who don't know the Lord. In our families and at the workplace, they live next to us, don't they? We go to school with them. Lots of people. And we have opportunity to be able to minister to them as we go eye to eye, mouth to mouth, hand to hand. You say, what do you mean by that? I pray that people would see, as you go eye to eye, the reality of Jesus Christ in your life. That they would see that there's something different about you. There's a joy in you. That, that there's something real in you, something different. And, and that's what I pray. Because you see, being a witness is not only the words that you speak, but also the life that you live. So go eye to eye as they see the reality of Jesus Christ being worked out in your life, mouth to mouth as you speak truth and as you give the gospel message, and hand to hand as well. As you have opportunity to reach out and to help, to help people out practically, to, to be able to, to do simple things for people, to show the love of Jesus Christ. And that's what John is going to be emphasizing when we go over our texts on Sunday morning. In 1 John, it's such an incredible book because John not only declares that God is love through the word, but also he reminds us that God proved his love, that God is love through the cross, and then thirdly, that God wants to do something in us, and that is he wants to put his love in us that we may be able to take that love and to reach out to others. And you and I have opportunities to do that, and that's why we pray that the Christians that will be able to go into areas like New Jersey and be able to, to share with others and help out and share and show the love of Jesus Christ. And we have opportunities as well to do that here. So that's where we left off, and, and, and the son came to life, and Elijah is continuing to work miracles. Let's pick it up at verse 38. And Elijah returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land. Now the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and he said to a servant, Put on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. So one went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from a lap full of wild gourds and came and sliced them into the pot of stew, though they did not know what they were. Then they served it to the men to eat. Now it happened as they were eating the stew, they cried out and said, Man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. So he said, Then bring some flour, and he put it into the pot and said, Serve it to the people that they may eat. And there was nothing harmful in a pot. So we have seen that Elijah, that he has these sons of the prophets 
that a, a school of ministry that has been growing, and there's about 100 of these guys as we're going to continue to read in this chapter. And they make this big pot of stew, and some of the guys go out and they collect herbs and other things, and they're cutting it up, and they put it into the stew, and all of a sudden they realize there's poisonous plants that are in that stew, and if we eat it, we're going to end up dying. They're crying out, there's death in the pot, there's death in the pot. So what does Elijah do? He doesn't just take out the, the poisonous plants because it's already permeated in the stew, hasn't it? It wouldn't really do a whole lot of good. It might help a little bit, but it's still no good. It's still poisonous. So what he does is he pours in the meal. And I think that there's an important application that we can make for us here tonight. It is simply this, that there's poison all around us, isn't it? I mean, we can go to work, you know, and we hear the conversations, and I'm sure that some of you come home and you say, God, my soul, my heart just feels poison. It just feels like so polluted because of the conversations, the raunchy jokes that are going on, things like that. We, we, we hear it all around us, and we try to avoid that as much as we can. And it, it is important that, that the things that we can control, that is what comes into our homes, that we are listening to that which is true and edifying and pleasing to God. So be wise and discerning in what you watch and what you're listening to. But sometimes that we can come home, can't we? And, and it's just like the conversations, you know, the things that we hear. We hear the news and we get very discouraged. There's a lot of poison that's out there and it can kind of bring death to our joy and to our happiness. And, um, you know, just we start feeling down and heavy and overwhelmed. And what is the key when that happens? Because, you see, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. And it isn't like that we can all go hide in the mountains and be monks and not hear anything ever again. We can't always pick out the poison, but one thing that we can do, you pour in the meal. You keep pouring into the scriptures. And you keep learning the scriptures, and I commend you for coming out here on this night. You see, there's a lot of other things that you could be doing. And one of the things that I've learned, and one of the things that I observed, and I'm not, you know, with the, hear my heart on this, because I don't want to have a critical spirit, but in 20 years of ministry, I think that things are a lot different today than they were 20 years ago when I first started ministry, and that is there can be a lot of distractions out there that keep you from coming and hearing the Word of God. There's a lot of distractions out there that will keep you from having your devotions, and we need to be pouring in the Scriptures. You see, every weekend there's a festival, there's a carnival, there's a 5K race, there's sports things that are going on and all that, and I know that you may do some of those things. I'm not saying that you're just terrible Christian because you missed a Sunday because of something that you're doing with the family. But what happens is, is that's no longer a priority. And no longer a priority in studying God's word and taking in the scriptures. You guys pour in the meal. Keep doing that. And keep learning of the scriptures. And as you do, you're going to see that that poison, discouragement, and all of that is going to begin to dissipate. And life, again, begins to just grow in your heart and in your soul. So this is what happens is Elijah purifies the pot of stew. And then Elijah feeds 100 men. And then a man came from Baal, Shalisha, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley bread, and a newly ripened, uh, ripened grain in his knapsack. And he said, give it to the people that they may eat. But his servant said, what shall I set this before 100 men? And he said again, give it to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according 
to the word of the Lord. So here is another miracle that Elijah performs. A guy comes, he comes and he has, you know, a few barley loaves, and he gives it to these sons of the prophets, there's a hundred of them, and it is the servant of the Lord. This is probably Gehazi that we're going to read about in the next chapter. He says, this is going to be enough for the guys. What is this? You know, am I supposed to set this out before them? And uh, Elijah says, yes, go ahead and set it out, and there's going to be leftovers. This reminds me so much of, in a way, of the feeding of the 5,000. And the reason that it does is because you recall that it was a little boy that came to Jesus on that hillside when there's 5,000, and that was just the men. That wasn't the women and the children. So there was many more. And we know that there were all those people there, and the little boy gave what little he had, a few loaves and a couple fish that he gave to Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He blessed it. He broke it, he multiplied it, and they had baskets, 12 baskets is what the synoptic narratives tell us, of leftovers that they picked up after everybody was full. They were stuffed, they couldn't eat anymore. Here's a real key. Again, you want to be used of the Lord? As we have seen in this chapter, three very important things. Number one, you make sure that you go eye to eye, that you go mouth to mouth, that you go hand to hand with others. Get involved in people's lives. And as I mentioned last week, that today with technology, we like to use Facebook, we like to text, we like to do all these things. Those are great tools, but don't forget to get personal with people. And sometimes we forget to do that because we have all this technology. Go eye to eye, go mouth to mouth, hand to hand, touch people's lives, and you'll see that life is going to come back into them. Make sure that you're pouring into the scriptures so that you're strong and you're edified and built up so you can minister to others. But also, listen, give the Lord the first fruits of your lives. So oftentimes the Lord gets the leftovers. He gets the leftovers of our time, of our devotions, of our resources, of our service. And this is something that we can all honestly go to the Lord. Between you and the Lord, Lord, are you getting the leftovers of my life or are you truly getting the first fruits? And here was a man that brought the first fruits of, of you know, grain, of the, the barley bread. And of course, in the Old Testament law, that the children of Israel, they were told to bring the first fruits of the harvest to the Lord. It was the first fruits belong to you, Lord. And I know that's something that the Lord desires for us today, a wonderful principle. Give him the first fruits. Don't give him the leftovers. Start your day with him. Make it a priority that, that you're one, that Lord, everything that I have, that you get the first fruits, whatever little or whatever lot you have or time that you have, resources that you have in serving him. And you see, again, so oftentimes that other things become the priority if we're not careful. And when you give the Lord the first fruits of your life, you're going to find that he's going to bless you and he's going to use you in a powerful, powerful way. And you might be thinking, I don't have much to give, Lord. But he's going to take it and he's going to bless it and he's going to multiply it. Because he's going to honor you as you give him the first fruits of your life, whatever that might mean, in whatever area of your life. 
So here are some important principles as we make application here tonight. But let's go on to chapter 5, and let's look at the story of Naaman, the Syrian commander. He's the commander of the army, as we read in verse 1, of the king of Syria, and a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. So as we open up this chapter, here's Naaman. He's the chief military commander of uh, a persistent enemy of both Israel and Judah. And as I've already mentioned to you, that it was in 1 Kings chapter 22, that Ahab, the king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, they ended up going to war against Syria. And it was there that Ahab was killed, and, and Syria had this victory. And it's interesting that here Naaman is referred to as a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master. He is also a mighty man of valor, and I find that to be very interesting. By him, God gave Syria victory, as we learn in verse 1. Now, that title, mighty man of valor, was a title applied to guys such as Gideon. Remember Gideon and his 300 men that defeated the, the Midianites in Judges chapters 6 and 7 and 8? Jephthah was called a mighty man of valor in Judges 11. David, the, the king of Israel, was called a mighty man of valor in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So it seems like that Naaman seems to be the only specific Gentile mentioned as a mighty man of valor. There is some Jewish tradition that says that he was the one that shot that arrow. You remember as we went over 1 Kings chapter 22, that somebody shot an arrow randomly and it hit Ahab and he ended up dying. That Jewish tradition says that that was Naaman who did that. So he is, here's a man that's very successful. He was a brave individual. He was a blessing to his nation. He was just a good guy, just an overall good guy. But there was a problem, and that is he was one that had leprosy. And leprosy back then was very serious, just as it is today. There's some parts of the world where there is leprosy. We don't hear it much in our country, but it's still around. There's no cure for it. But back in ancient times, and we know from Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, that the children of Israel were told that if somebody had a spot, you know, a bump or a scab or you know, uh, a mark of some sort, that the priest would take them outside the camp, would inspect them. And if it was found to be leprosy, they were isolated from the camp because it was very contagious. And leprosy, it started out small, but it would begin to grow. And as it began to grow, it would eventually just begin to take over all your skin and it would eat away at your fingers and eat away at your nose and your ears and the, you know, your toes and eventually your teeth would fall out and you would die from the disease. It was a horrible disease. And if you had leprosy, you had to live in tent-like colonies or in cave-like colonies. You couldn't come in and have contact with people. You could not come in to the cities. You couldn't go to the synagogue and worship. So you were ostracized in society. Uh, it was the religious leaders in Jesus' day that would teach that if you had leprosy, it's because of God's judgment that was coming down on you. And so we see these pictures of leprosy throughout the scriptures. And we know that as we talk about leprosy, it's a picture of sin. Because sin starts out small. It begins to spread. It begins to eat away at us. And so leprosy is such a destructive uh, thing and eventually death comes is a picture of sin as we look at the scripture. We also know that as leprosy, that the only one that ever healed anyone of leprosy in the gospels was Jesus. 
And you'll recall that he healed that man with leprosy that was full of leprosy and the ten lepers of Luke. And so healing came to the lepers. In the Old Testament, this is really the only time that we see healing of leprosy that we will see. So here's a guy that he's a good guy. He's, he's known by his nation. He's a blessing to his nation, but he's a leper. And you see, it's a picture of us. It's a picture of us because all of us were leprous at one time. We were stricken by sin. The, the leprosy and sin that would cause death in our lives. And you see, oftentimes we look at people and we say, they're a good person. They're, they're a blessing to their community. They, they provide for their family. They're just a good person. But there's a problem. They have leprosy. There's a sin problem. So what we're going to see here is kind of a picture of salvation as we go through this. And Naaman, he was one that uh, it's a picture of the state of man, leprosy, a picture of sin. Uh, he was a good person, but still he needed to be cleansed of this leprosy or he was going to die. So we read in verse 2, And the Syrians had gone out on raids and brought back a captive, a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. And then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. So in ancient times, whenever there was victory in war, captives would be taken. And here, after the victory of 1 Kings chapter 22, that here is Naaman and the Syrians continuing raids into Israel. A young girl from Israel is taken captive to serve in Naaman's household. And she is serving his wife. She hears of Naaman having a leprosy. She says only if he knew the prophet that he would receive healing. She had a heart for him. Even though she was taken captive, taken away from her home. And you see, she wasn't just concerned about herself, but she was concerned about her master. You know, sometimes we can feel like I'm being taken captive, you know, in some way at the workplace, by the neighbors, by situations. But what I pray is that we would never lose a heart for people. A heart for people to know the prophet, capital P, Jesus Christ. And she was a witness to him and came to, to Naaman and said, only if you knew there's healing that can come. And you and I have opportunity to do that as well because there's sin, and to give people the truth. There's sin, that's the state of man, but there's hope for you in Jesus Christ who came and died for you. We continue as, as Naaman goes to the, to the king of Syria and says, hey, you know, there's a guy in Israel that can heal. And the king of Syria, in verse 5, said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, now be advised when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So Naaman goes to the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad number two. I need to go to Israel, meet this prophet. And the king of Israel receives this letter. And he's all upset. He's thinking, this is a big demand. You know, who am I, God, that I can heal him? I can't guarantee this. The king of Syria just wants to have a fight. He wants to war with us. 
And it's interesting, isn't it, the faith of these two men, Ben-Hadad and Naaman? They thought, no big deal. And here's the king of Israel, who is supposed to be one of God's people, the nation, the leader of God's people. And he has no faith. And he's thinking, this can't be. There's no way. They can't be healed. Have you ever looked at somebody? I'm sure that all of us have. We thought, no way that person can be healed. No way that they can be saved. No way that God can touch them, can change them. And we need to remember that God can change. That his hand of mercy and grace can change the hardest of hearts, the most depraved heart, can bring healing to the most leprous person that is out there. That God isn't beyond reaching them. That we need to keep praying and have a heart for them. So Naaman takes a couple million dollars to pay off the prophet Elijah. And he wants to you know, pay big bucks for the healing that he's prepared to get. Isn't it wonderful that salvation is a free gift? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is a gift as you surrender your heart to Jesus Christ, as you give your life to him, the incredible grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here we read in verse 8, So it was when Elijah the man of God heard the, the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. And then Naaman went with his horses and chariots, and he stood at the door of Elijah's house. It's like, let him come to me. I want to be a witness to him. How open are we to people to come to us, to hear truth, to share with them the things of God? Or do we say, oh, it's a bother. Oh, you know what? I I want my evenings to myself, whatever it might be. I'm just saying that I pray that we would always be open every day. Lord, I don't know who you might divinely sent my way, but when you do, I want to be open to be able to share with them. So Elijah says, send him here. Why are you tearing your clothes? Because the king of Israel, he didn't have any relationship with the true and living God. So Naaman comes with this large entourage, this company of horses and, and chariots in verse 10. And Elijah sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored to you and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious and he went away and said, indeed, I said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and Call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. And are not Albana and uh, Farpar and the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. So here comes Elijah, that, that as he comes to Elijah's house, that is. Elijah sends his messenger, his servant out to meet him. And the prophet, you know, tells you to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. And in that day, you didn't ignore a general like Naaman. I mean, that was kind of an insult to him. He came all this way with all these gifts. And, you know, you're going to send your, your servant out. You're not even going to have the decency to come out and see me. And he was thinking he's going to wave his hand and it's all going to be done. But God is doing something that is necessary for all of us to come to salvation. And that is he's going to humble Naaman. And all of us that have come to Jesus Christ, there was a humbling that took place, wasn't there? As Jesus said that you've got to humble yourself and come in childlike faith. And we needed to humble ourselves, die to self, come and say, Lord, I can't save myself. I am a sinner. 
I recognize that, that I have leprosy, and I need you, the Savior of the world. But I also, as we see that this is a picture of salvation for Naaman here, and a picture of the state of man, that we need to humble ourselves, I want to bring it a little bit closer to us tonight, because Naaman went away in rage. He thought, this is how God's going to work. And oftentimes, if we're not careful, we can think, Lord, why aren't you working in this way? I thought you would work in this way and you'd wave your hand and everything would be done and this trial would be over with, but it continues on. And we know that his ways are not our ways, that his ways are much higher. And we need to humble ourselves on a daily basis and allow God to work in a way that he wants to, to know that he will be faithful and true. And he knows what is best for us. Allow him to do that work, not on how we think or what we want, but Lord, not my will, but your will be done. So verse 13, we see, And a servant came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you have done it? And how much more then would he says to you, wash and be clean? So one of Naaman's advisors said, Hey, if he would ask, would you have done, you know, if it was difficult, would you have gone ahead and done it? Probably you would have. So why don't you just humble yourself, dip in the Jordan River, what do you got to lose? And Naaman's going to take the advice of his servant, verse 14. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan according to the saying of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So he was completely healed, that is, it takes place. So first of all, there was a witness. God wants us to be a witness in how we live and the message that we give. So there was a witness, there was a message, there was a humbling here as he humbled himself, as he heard the message, go dip in the Jordan seven times, and there was complete surrender, because Naaman, he could have got dipped three times and said, forget this, I don't want to do it, this is ridiculous, after six times. But there was complete surrender. And that's how we came to the Lord, was cleansed of leprosy. There is a witness, whether through the word of God, there was a message of the gospel given to us. There was a humbling of the heart. And then there was a surrender to Jesus Christ. So Naaman here, he is cleansed of his leprosy. In verse 15, he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. So here was Naaman, he had all this gold, he had all this stuff. He says, please, take these gifts. Elijah says, no, I, I don't want to give it. You know, I don't want to take it. So, you know, sometimes when we minister to others, especially if we get frustrated, we can think, Lord, where's, you know, where's some reward? Where's some satisfaction? This has been hard. Well, you always keep in mind that your reward's going to be in heaven. And that's going to be a reward that's going to last forever. And we've talked about that quite a bit in our recent studies on Sunday mornings. That we're all going to stand before the Bama reward seat of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, we'll talk about it on this Sunday. Because it gets brought up again, the subject. And remember that the ministry that you do, that you freely give to others. And that the Lord's going to reward you in heaven. And that reward's going to last for all eternity. So here Elijah says, I don't want, you know, your gifts. He refused. So now we read about the faith of Naaman. He says in verse 17, Then if not, please let your servant be given two 
uh, mule loads of earth for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant when the master goes into the temple of Rimmon to worship there and he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimmon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimmon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. And then he said to him, verse 19, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. We're going to end here tonight. Here is Naaman in his newfound faith. He said, I know that there's no other God but in Israel. Can I take a couple bags of dirt back to Syria so I can worship him? He doesn't understand. You know, back in those times, and we've already seen this, that they thought deities were localized. You remember in uh, chapter 20 of 1 Kings that when Ahab in Israel went to war against Syria, that Syria lost, and they, they said, we lost because their God is the God of the mountains. We've got to fight them in the valleys. And they ended up losing. He didn't understand yet that the God, that he believed the true and the living God now, that he could be worshipped anywhere. That he could be worshipped in Syria. That he could be worshipped in Israel. That we can worship the Lord in our home or at the workplace or here at church. But then he also says, pardon me, I'm not going to burn any incense to false gods anymore, but I've got to be in the temple with the king. It's my duty. I'm going to be on his right-hand side. Will you please pardon me? And what did Elijah say? Did he start to blast him? He says, go in peace. I just want to encourage you. As we minister to those who are young in the Lord, you know, Elijah could have very easily have said, what do you mean you're going to take back a couple, you know, bags of dirt? You idiot, don't you know any different? And what do you mean you're going to be in that temple? He could have really come down on them, but he says, go in peace. And here's the thing. We want to give people truth always. We never want to compromise the truth, but we want to be patient with those who are young. And sometimes they're going to come to us, and they're going to say things, and we're going, eh, that's a little bit off the cuff. You know, that's a little bit, you know, different, or, you know, it's not exactly this way. Be patient in growing people in the things of God and the Word of God. Because they have the peace of God in their lives. And we don't want to discourage them. It takes real discernment in that. And I think Elijah, he has discernment. He says, go in peace. You just trust him that the Lord's going to grow him and show him these things and convict him. And sometimes we will do the same thing. You know, just go in peace. And continue to minister to them and grow them and disciple them. Folks, we have a wonderful opportunity to be a blessing to others as we discussed tonight. Make sure that you are pouring into the scripture so you can give it to others. That you're growing in the Lord so you can bless others. Make sure you're giving the Lord the first fruits of your life. And make sure that you're giving the message of the reality of Jesus Christ and the truth of Jesus Christ with your life and with the words you speak. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this time of study as we go over this tonight. And just a time of prayer tonight, Lord. And Oh, Lord, what a blessing to be with the brethren and to be in your word and to study these things. And Lord, I, I, I do want to pray for um, Mr. Clifford. Is, he couldn't be here tonight with the high schoolers, but Lord, just the urgency of what he's as, um, just ministering to his family, that you just bless him. Just be with them, Lord, and with their family. Lord, I do pray that... Um, that tonight as we've heard your word, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity that we have here 
to be able to proclaim the message of the gospel that all of us have sinned, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus Christ came to this world and died for our sins because of his love for us. And I pray if there's anybody here tonight that you've never done that. Religion isn't going to save you. You can't save yourself. It's a heart that's belief in Jesus Christ, who he is, the Son of God, and what he did for you and dying on Calvary's cross for your sins to cleanse you. That the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is of eternal life comes through Jesus Christ and what he did for you. And he rose from the grave. He conquered sin and death. So the Bible says that as we come in belief in our hearts, confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that we shall be saved. There's a turning to Jesus. Jesus came along and said, repent. He just said, turn direction. Quit going the direction you're going and turn to him, the creator of the universe who came and died for you. Surrender your heart to him and receive his forgiveness and his love and the promise of eternal life that comes only through Jesus Christ. No one else died for you. No one else rose from the grave, only Jesus. And if there's anyone listening to this message that you've never done that, you have opportunity right now to do that because today is the day of salvation. Now's the appointed time. And you can pray right where you're sitting. Jesus, come into my life. Be my Lord and Savior, because I confess I'm a sinner in need of you, and you're the one that died for me. I believe that you died on Calvary's cross. For my sins, forgive me. And I turn to you, and I surrender my heart to you right now. I believe that you're alive because you rose from the grave. And I know that you're just drawing me to yourself right now. And I accept the invitation that you give for eternal life and a life committed to you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me and for saving me and forgiving me. If anybody prayed that prayer tonight, will you raise your hand? Anybody at all in this service? Don't be afraid.